This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Demons, the unseen realm, I, I really hope that it's uh, benefited you in some way. And hope you've learned. I, I, just, I was just reflecting on that. And I've learned a lot preparing for this class. And we were at a group yesterday reading Knowing God, talking about just the importance of doctrine for the Christian life. You know, not always thinking about what practical effect does this have? But just sound doctrine makes healthy Christians. You know, so we we really want to take all of Scripture seriously. So it's a blessing to go through this topic together. Uh, before we get started on this week, I do want to make a quick announcement. So in December next month, we'll take a break for Cornerstone U. Then in January, February, I'm really excited that we're uh, going to do a class called Christian Foundations. And uh, it's like a discipleship class where we walk through kind of the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. And so the, the idea is that it would really serve a wide range of people, new Christians, people who've been Christians a long time, just wanting renewal in the basics of the Christian faith. And we're actually creating a booklet to go alongside it. It's kind of like discipleship material. So if you had somebody, either a you know teenager or uh, somebody that you wanted to mentor, or you really thought, like, ah, somebody could really benefit from walking through the basics of the Christian faith, and wanted to bring them and get this booklet to go through together, that's, uh, that's kind of the idea. So we'll make an announcement about this. Uh, sometime next month, but I'm really excited about it, and so I just wanted to share it with you first to keep on your calendar. Uh, so let's just start with a little recap of the class, what, what we've learned so far. Um, we started off with angels and the unseen realm, kind of talking about having a supernatural worldview, the idea that, um, you know, we don't there's more going on in reality than meets the eye. There's a spiritual realm. There's drama. There's conflict in the unseen realm. Last week, uh, Jake taught you about Christ the Conqueror, how Christ has come to vanquish Satan and his works. And this week, we're going to talk about spiritual warfare. Uh, so that's the theme of this class. What, what is spiritual warfare? defined by scripture. What does it mean for my life? What does it mean for you as you wake up tomorrow and go to work or whatever you have going on in your life? How, how does spiritual warfare affect you? But I thought I should begin by um, setting our expectations right and saying what this what won't be in this class. <laughs> so There's not going to be um, stories of various levels of demonic possession in this class. There's not going to be step-by-step -step instructions on what to do if you think you've encountered demonic spirits. Um, and the reason why, that would be a very interesting thing for us to talk about and look at. The reason why is we want to let Scripture really drive our study of this subject. Now, these things are in Scripture for sure, but the bulk of what Scripture says about spiritual warfare has to do with things that might surprise you. Things like our battle with anger. Things like uh, feeling condemned for sin. I would argue, will argue, that 
Spiritual warfare is often not the, the sensational. It's the very practical. It's the, it's the pursuit of Christian holiness and living. So what will be in this class, we'll, we'll try to define spiritual warfare biblically. But we're really going to focus on two key texts of Scripture. We'll look at Revelation 12, which we mentioned on the class on Satan. And then we will uh, look at Ephesians 6, which is kind of the key text on spiritual warfare. Then we'll think about some implications for this session and the whole class as well. So spiritual warfare, let's just think about a definition of spiritual warfare. What is spiritual warfare? We'll do a little class interaction to get started. We'll use our whiteboard today. So spiritual warfare, what comes to mind? Just, just one, one or two words, sentence, no wrong answers. Well, I shouldn't say that. There are wrong answers. But, but it won't be embarrassing if you said a wrong answer. No, I'm just kidding. What comes to mind when you think of spiritual warfare? Say it again. Oppression. Oppression. Okay. Good. What else? Good. Prayer. Good. Well, why do you say prayer? Well, because to me, that's where you really get into the spiritual aspect mm. of life. It's been prayer and communion with God. Excellent. Yeah, prayer. What we're going to look at Ephesians 6. It's interesting how he walks through all the, the armor of God. Then it's soaked in prayer, putting it on through prayer. That's very good. Well, what about one more? What, what comes to mind? Your spiritual warfare. This is way off the mark, but Frank Peretti. Frank Peretti. Okay, <laughs> good, good. Uh, I was talking to, uh, I think it was John Schindler about Frank Peretti the other day. He was talking about this class, and yeah, I've read some of Frank Peretti's books in high school. <laughs> this is. This is, this is wild. But yeah, we do often think about the, the sensational. Um, and spiritual warfare, I think, is a theme that we, it's one of those themes that actually our culture is still fascinated with. So we've talked about this several times, the idea of like horror movies, demonic possession. These are things that are, it's interesting because our culture is becoming more and more secular in one sense. But in another sense, it's really fascinating with these things, isn't it? Isn't it? So we want to think about what the Bible says. And so spiritual warfare is not mainly sensational. It's not mainly spooky, like outwardly spooky. It's not mainly obvious. Now I'm using that word mainly. That's very important because what we don't want to do is go on to the other side of the spectrum and become skeptics. Uh, we don't, for instance, I was hearing a, a story somebody was telling me about somebody on campus who they thought was possessed by a demon. And they were telling me this story, and I just noticed my initial reaction was to be skeptical. Just like, come on, that's, I can't really do what's going on. But according to scripture, I don't think that should be my initial reaction, is skepticism, right? Now, that doesn't mean that's necessarily what was going on. Does that make sense? I think we want to be careful both ways. We don't want to just jump headlong in and say, yes, every, every evil and every sin in our world is, is demonic and it's, it's right in front of me. We also don't want to be skeptical and think, oh, come on, like, we've gotten past that. 
That's actually, that's a, that's a secular enlightenment worldview that says the supernatural doesn't play a part in our everyday life. What we see in Scripture is that that is not the worldview of Scripture. That is not reality. Uh, so it's important. I, but I do use that word mainly because in Scripture, that is not the main ways Satan and his demons are active in, um, in, in hindering the Christian life. Spiritual warfare is mainly theological. If you remember, Satan in the garden, what he does is he twists God's words. He, he, he wants people to believe false doctrine about God. So, so, I mean, maybe take a step out of what you think is spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is, I'm tempted to believe something false about God. That's spiritual warfare. And we don't think about that, but that's what Satan does. He's, he's a, a twister of God's words. It's mainly theological. It's mainly moral. So Satan is a deceiver. He's going after theology. He's also a tempter. It's moral. There's a text in Ephesians 5 that says, Don't let the sun go down on your anger, lest you give the devil a foothold in your life. Fascinating. Do we ever think about that whenever we have conflict with our friends or our spouses or our co-workers? That if I, if I let bitterness soak into my heart, that's actually spiritual warfare that's going on. Satan is a tempter. And it's, it's practical. It's, it's everyday life spiritual warfare is going on. Here's a quote from a guy named Clinton Arnold. He uh, he wrote a really interesting book called, I think it's called something like Power in Ephesians. And he's, he's talking about how Ephesians, if you remember when Paul was ministering in Ephesus, Ephesus is the city of Artemis the Great. There's all sorts of magic, spiritual activity going on. And when, you know, when the Ephesians are converted and the church is planted, people are throwing their magic books into the fire. And the city's in uproar because that's like a huge part of their economy. And he makes the argument that when you read Ephesians, look out for the term power. The term power comes up over and over and over again. And it would be really encouraging to Ephesian Christians to see that God's power, the power that Christ has in raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life, he's contrasting it with the pagan um, demonic powers that are, that are at work in, in Ephesus. It's really interesting. We'll come back to that. That's Clinton Arnold's book. I, I don't remember. I think it's Power in Ephesians or something. He says this. Spiritual warfare is a phrase that should cover a way of characterizing our common struggle as Christians because we all face supernatural opposition as we set out in the Christian life. You, know, you may be someone who says, I have not experienced spiritual warfare. But if you're a Christian, that is not true. If you're a Christian, you have, you do, you are experiencing spiritual warfare. There is a war going on, and our lives are a part of that. Here's a definition of spiritual warfare I think is helpful. And this is kind of what we're basing our content off of. 
This is a guy named William Cook III. He says, this is spiritual warfare. The ongoing battle between the church and the devil and his forces. With the church standing in the armor of God, defensively resisting the devil, and offensively proclaiming the gospel in a battle already won. It's very helpful, the ongoing battle. I like that it says between the church and the devil. It's not even between God and the devil, because that, that makes it seem like it's a it's almost like a fair fight. Like God and the devil are fighting each other, and we'll see who wins. We hope God wins. That's not really the case at all. God is transcendent above the devil and allows the devil to fight with the church during, during this age. It's an ongoing battle. It requires defense. We'll talk about this in Ephesians, like defending against Satan's attacks. But also is offensive. Think about it. When you, when you share the gospel with somebody, when you get up in the morning and read your Bible, when you fight for faith, when we seek to plant churches as a church, that is offensive spiritual warfare. Uh, Jesus says that, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are a defensive structure, right? So the church is not fundamentally on the defense, but on the offense in a war that has already been decisively won and will be finally won. But a question comes up. This is a bit of a tangent, maybe. But one question, at least I would have, is why is there a warfare at all? So last week you learned about Christ, Christ the Conqueror, uh, I'm guessing it's how you spell conqueror. I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, Christ the conqueror, how he defeated Satan at the cross. So why is there still a battle if Christ has already won? And this is a really important, important question and a really important concept for understanding the New Testament. And it's this concept that what the New Testament teaches is that the kingdom of God, so it's the victory of God, the power of God, is already, but not yet. Has anyone heard of that before? Kind of that, that paradigm? So when we're looking at the New Testament, the kingdom of God is already here. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. So, so the power over Satan, the forgiveness of sins, the power of the Holy Spirit is already here, but is not yet here in full. So when Christ returns, the kingdom will be what theologians call consummated. It will be brought to its fullness. Death will be no more. Satan will be vanquished. The difference, an illustration to understand this, is it's kind of like the difference between D-Day and V-E-Day. You know, so D-Day in World War II, that's when Allied forces stormed the, beach, stormed the beaches of Normandy and won the decisive victory. After they won that battle, victory in Europe was, was pretty, was secure. It was, it was almost certain after that, after that battle. But then there's still this period, period of warfare between D-Day and VE-Day, which stands for Victory in Europe Day. Even though the battle was decisively won at D-Day, there's it's almost like a cleanup operation 
uh, as, as Allied forces are moving deeper into Europe to win the war decisively. And I think that provides an illustration of kind of the time period we're living in right now as Christians. D-Day has already, has already happened. That is the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The decisive victory has already been won. God doesn't need you or need me to defeat Satan. Like, I, I, I don't know if you feel like a way of spiritual warfare that I have to really gear up and I, I'm needed to fight Satan and do battle with him. The decisive victory has already been won. We can just rest, have faith that the Lord has done that. But the E-Day, the return of Christ, has not come yet. So we are still in this period where our enemy is still alive, is still active, and there is requirement for us to fight. Does that, does that make sense? Anyone have any questions about that? This, this is a really important paradigm for understanding all sorts of things in Scripture, not just spiritual warfare. Um, when we think about you know, the Christian life, we are new creations in Christ. So the Spirit has raised us from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's, that's D-Day. It's like it's begun already. But when Christ returns, our bodies will be raised to new physical life. Does that make sense? So right now, we live in, in the in-between where Romans 8 says we groan inwardly. Like we wait for this day even as we can rejoice in this day. This just makes sense of so many things. Like we can go into this meeting and sing and raise our hands and praise the Lord, even though there are things in our lives that are painful, perplexing. And it's not hypocritical, right? So some people might look, look in and say, wow, how are, you, how are you singing and you just seem happy? The world is a mess. Your life is a mess. There's so much going on. We can sing with joy because D-Day has already happened. We have the Spirit in our lives. We know we belong to God. We know He's at work, and we're waiting for this day to come. That's a sure thing. Does that make sense? It's really, it's really important for us to understand this. Okay, so that's kind of... This paradigm kind of answers the question, what time is it? Like, in the battle... What phase of the war are we in, maybe? The decisive battle's already been won, cleanup operation, the war will be ended when Christ returns. But let's see a description. So I want to look at two texts of scripture. One is Revelation 12. So I, I have it printed out on your outline, or if you want to open up in your Bible to Revelation 12, you can do that as well. I told you, I, I mentioned this in our class on Satan, but this text is very, very important for understanding spiritual warfare. It's Revelation chapter 12. Uh, the book of Revelation is a, is a difficult book to understand in many ways. I mean, you know this, there's so, so many different interpretations about what's the timeline, how everything works out. But I think an important principle for us to understand as we look at this is that Revelation is not primarily about what's going to happen in the future. It's primarily about what's happening right now in the spiritual realm. 
That, that's a, that is kind of a, I don't want to say a controversial claim that requires a specific view of Revelation and the end times. But I think the best way to understand Revelation is that it's primarily picturing this ongoing battle between the church and Satan from almost from heaven's vantage point. As you read it, you say, oh wow, there's a dragon. We're going to look at, I hope you see this in Revelation 12, not just taking my word for it, but that's what's going on as we, as we read. And then in chapters 21 and 22, it is talking about this future time when Christ returns, all things are made new. So let, let's look at, uh, at Revelation 12. Actually, first a quote from G.K. Beale that supports what I was just saying. He, he's a commentator on Revelation that I, I just really benefited from a lot. I remember when we, so several years ago, we did a sermon series on Revelation and uh, I got G.K. Beale's commentary and just walked through it from my devotions for, I don't remember how long, but it's so encouraging to my faith. You can be encouraged in your faith reading the book of Revelation. I just, wanna, I just want, you to, want you to know that, that it can actually not just build speculation, but build faith and steel in your bones. So this is what he says. Revelation conveys truth and direction from God as to the nature of the battle raging in the heavens and how believers are to respond to this battle, not at some undetermined date in the future, but in their lives here and now. In their lives here and now. So Revelation is written to these seven churches in Asia Minor. And then there's a prophetic vision of what's going on. And these Christians are supposed to see, okay, here's what's going on. We're supposed to see that. That's what's going on. So this is Revelation 12. We'll start in verse 1. We'll read through verse 6, make a couple, couple comments, and then keep going down. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour her. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Okay, <laughs> there's, there's a lot going on in this, in this text. What I want to briefly mention is these three characters. Okay, so you have one, you have the woman. You have the child, and you have the dragon. And we, again, we talked about this before, but it's good to review. The, the woman, scholars say, is, is the messianic community. So think about the people of God from whom the Messiah will come. So in the Old Testament, it's the people of Israel. In the New Testament, it's the church. This is, this is the, um, the woman that gives birth to the child 
who is to rule the nations of the earth with a rod of iron. Anybody know what that's a reference to? It's a Psalm 2, right? Remember Psalm 2 where this, this king is going to come to rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's a promise about the Messiah. And that's what's going on here in this text. That's the child he's talking about. And third is the dragon, this ancient serpent-like creature that is out to destroy Christ, destroy the people of God. So what this is depicting, verses 1 through 6, is talking about the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Christ, and Satan's activity to try to destroy Christ. And this is what's going on, talk about revelations, what's going on, right now, or what's been going on in the first century, what's going on right now, this is talking about when when King Herod is trying to destroy the baby Jesus. Like, what's going on behind that? It's the work of the dragon. The dragon is at work. Satan is at work trying to destroy this child. But the text says, she gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. It's a reference to Christ's death and his resurrection and ascension. Satan tried to destroy Jesus, but God raised him up from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He's safe in, in heaven. But then what, what happens next? Verses 7 through 12 talk about what's going on in, in heaven, even as this is going on on earth. And there's a battle in heaven. I'll just summarize it. There's a battle going on in heaven. Michael, an archangel, is fighting against Satan, who's a fallen angel. And Satan is cast out of heaven. And this all has to do with the redemptive work of Christ. So if you remember, remember the book of Job, there's really odd scenes in Job, right? Where this divine counsel scene, we talked about that in the first class, about how, okay, you have this group of angelic beings and Satan comes forward and is among them, in heaven, with God. And he's saying, have you considered your servant Job? And he starts accusing Job and saying, Job only loves you because of what you give to him. He doesn't love you for who you are. He's trying to defame God's glory and say, accusing Job of only being in it for the good stuff that he gets. So it seems that in the Old Testament, Satan has this ability to kind of go, he's on earth, he can go up to heaven, he can accuse the brethren, you see that language in the book of Revelation? But in this, in the coming of Christ, his death and resurrection, Satan is thrown down out of heaven. What that means is, because Christ has forgiven our sins, because we're justified by faith, there's no longer any power Satan has to accuse us. Right? Wait, we get, I think Martin Luther would say something like that. It's like, yeah, it's a, if, if Satan comes to you and, and is accusing you of your sin, you say, yes, you're right. I am a great sinner, but Christ has died for my sins. Right? So that's what this is depicting. That this war in heaven, this, this sort of dragon being thrown down out of heaven, that is an apocalyptic a vision of the effects of the death and resurrection of Christ. You guys, you guys, so you tracking, tracking with me here? That's that's what's going on in this thing, which is amazing. If you just stop and think about it, we can get so it can become so routine to us. Yes, Jesus died for my sins. 
raised from the dead, I'm forgiven. I get it. Like let's let's move on to the to the next the next big thing. <laughs> this text says what that means, the ramifications of that are cosmic in scope. The fact that I'm justified by faith means that this dragon can't accuse me of my sins anymore. And when he does, it's totally powerless. That's, that's what's going on here. Okay, now I want to read the, the, these next verses. This is verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, so he's no longer able to go to heaven and accuse the brethren, he pursued the woman. Remember, the woman's the, the church, the people of God, who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Verse 17, again, the dragon became furious and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That text is what we live every day of our lives. I just want you to catch that. Spiritual warfare. The, the Satan, the deceiver, the dragon, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. We are that offspring, the people of God that encounter this wrath of the dragon. But ultimately, we are kept safe through the testimony of Jesus. Okay, so that's a, that's a description of spiritual warfare. There's so much more in here, but I do want to move on to kind of what this looks like practically. The reason I wanted to share this is because, again, we often think spiritual warfare is the sensational stuff. What this says is that the ordinary things of Christian living, temptation to sin, battling temptation, fighting for holiness, trying to believe the Word of God, all of that seems so ordinary. But behind that, What's going on is Satan trying to make war against the offspring of, of the woman. Does, it, does that make sense? Like, this kind of raises the stakes a little bit, doesn't it, for our just everyday, ordinary lives, no matter who you are. You may say, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a missionary, I just, I just go to work, I just stay at home with the kids, I'm just a student, there's no cosmic conflict in my life. It's not true truth, according to Scripture. No matter how mundane you feel like your life is, you are a part of this conflict. You have a role to play. You are called to wage spiritual warfare and the normal things of life. The good news is that this warfare will end. V.E. Day will come. Revelation 20.10 says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Some people have this picture of hell that it's kind of like 
don't know, Satan is sort of sitting on the throne of hell, and he's got his like pitchfork in his hand, and he's just maniacally laughing at everybody who's been condemned in hell. That is not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is that Satan himself is suffering, will suffer, will be thrown into the lake of fire, destroyed, suffering forever with those who he has deceived. So don't, don't, don't give, except we, we do have a fierce enemy that we, we don't want to be flipping about. Don't give him too much credit. Satan will be punished forever. Okay, so that's a description of spiritual warfare. The Revelation is called, it's called an apocalypse, which is, that word literally means an unveiling. So if our everyday lives, if there's like a veil between sort of the um, earthly realm and the spiritual realm, Revelation, the apocalypse, takes off the veil and says, this is what's going on. That, I think that's the best way to read Revelation. But what does this look like practically? And now I want to look at Ephesians chapter 6. So Ephesians 6 is the classic text on spiritual warfare. How do we, how do we wage spiritual warfare? I'm going to go over some verses from here, and then we'll look at some implications. <coughs> Ephesians 6, 10-20 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers. You guys remember that from session one about how the angelic beings have a certain level of authority over the world, but they've rebelled against God, and now that authority is nefarious, it's, it's evil, it's why there's so much injustice in the nations. It's human sin, but also these powers, these spiritual beings that are, exist in our world against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, what should we do, Paul? There's a dragon after us. There's forces after us. What should we do? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Our enemy, there's several things in this text that are so important. And I think I've listed a few on your outline of just describing okay, important principles for, for spiritual warfare. One is that our enemy, our enemy is spiritual. We wrestle against spiritual beings, not flesh and blood. Think about this. It's very important to remember this. If we have a presidential election coming up next year. So just remember that no, no candidate, no political party, no group of people is ultimately our enemy. Who's our enemy? Spiritual forces at work. 
right? It's important to remember that. That's why we can have unity, as we've learned these past several weeks on Sunday mornings, well, I guess before Dave Taylor came in, our unity is in the gospel, not in anything else. We also learn that we need the strength of the Lord for the battle. We, we shouldn't. The reality of spiritual warfare, we don't swagger into spiritual warfare, into the battle. We need the strength of the Lord. This is a great quote by a name, John Downing. He says, If we indeed regard the enemy's strength and our weakness only, we might well be discouraged from the undertaking of this combat. But if we look upon our grand Captain Christ, I was thinking about Captain America when I read that. I don't know why. You know, if you're on Captain America, we don't have Captain America. We have Captain Christ, whose love toward us is no less than his power, and both infinite. There's no cause of doubting. He hath already overcome our enemies. Praise the Lord. But we must resist Satan's schemes. These schemes are be false teaching, could be temptations to sin. It's like looking out saying, okay, how, is, how, is, how am I tempted? What's going on? And we must stand firm. What's interesting is we're not called to win the battle. We're called to stand firm in the midst of the battle. Remember that. that Christ is the one who is conquering Satan and will. And we must put on the armor of God. Wish I had time to go through all of these pieces. But the main emphasis on putting on the armor of God you have the belt of truth. It's, it's putting on and appropriating the truth of who God is and what Christ has done for us. So the belt of truth, that's gospel truth. Christ has died for my sins. He's raised from the dead. Truth about God. The breastplate of righteousness is living in step with the gospel, which transformed me. Shoes of the gospel, ready, uh, the shoes of an evangelist, ready to share. The shield of faith extinguishing the attacks of Satan. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. All these things are putting on the gospel is the main point of spiritual warfare. And finally, we must pray. This is the Genesis point. It's by prayer that we appropriate this armor. We put it on and we stand and fight through prayer. We want to conclude with a story and then just one or two Implications: the story of spiritual warfare. One of the more, it, it is kind of a sensational story, but I, I think it proves a point. It's a story of a guy named Boniface. Boniface lived in the 8th century, 700s. He was a British monk. Did you know that the gospel primarily spread from the years 500 AD to 1000 AD? primarily spread the barbarian tribes through the means of missionary monks. So interesting. Uh, that period of church history, how God, though many errors, of course, with monasticism, these monks were used to spread the gospel to barbarian tribes. Boniface was a British monk who was set apart to preach the gospel to the pagan tribes of Germany. This is a bunch of different tribes, not Christian these people worshipped many gods, spirits, and their ancestors. There was a village that had a tree, an oak tree, in the middle of this village. And they called it the Oak of Thor. And yeah, Thor, like the Thor from Marvel, is a Germanic, I think, I think it's Germanic god. I don't think it's Norse. I don't remember. Anyway, but it's connected. That's the point, is that there's continuity between 
kind of these gods and what the gods worship them, or what the people worship them. But Boniface, he, he's wanting to reach these people, so he decides, and I don't recommend this if you have like Hindu friends that worship idols, he decides he's going to chop down the tree. So this is no joke. There's like a village just like this. Imagine there's a tree right there in the aisle, and I'm preaching the gospel to you, and I come up with an axe to this tree that people, people revere this tree and think that the god Thor comes down and fills this tree, so they worship it. And here, here's the account. This is, again, this is the account. This is a biographical. Taking his courage in his hands, for a great crowd of pagans stood by, watching and bitterly cursing in their hearts the enemy of the gods, he cut the first notch. One way. But when he had made a superficial cut, suddenly the oak's vast bulk, shaken by a mighty blast of wind from above, crashed to the ground shivering its topmost branches into fragments in its fall. As if by the express will of God, the oak burst asunder into four parts, each having a trunk of equal length. At the sight of this extraordinary spectacle, the heathens who had been cursing ceased to revile and began, on the contrary, to believe and bless the Lord. What a, what, what a story! Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Again, again I, I don't share that and say, this is what you should do as you go out and share the gospel. No, I don't recommend that. But what it illustrates is spiritual warfare means taking a stand. Barnabas took a stand against the works of Satan. And we're called to take a stand too. Stand firm against temptation in our lives. To stand firm against false teaching that we hear or see on social media. We're called to stand firm. I want to conclude just few implications. This is of the class as a whole. One, realize that your life is a part of a cosmic conflict. We've mentioned this several times. Your life is a part of a cosmic conflict. Satan is at work trying to destroy the church. He will not prevail, but he's still fighting. Your, your living room your office, your bedroom, your computer screen is a battlefield. Okay? That, that's where the battle is being waged, is in your everyday life. Number two, resist skepticism and sensationalism. We talked about that. We don't want to be skeptics, but we don't want to be sensational. And third and lastly, I think this class as a whole should cause us to rejoice in the greatness and the victory of our God. God is the maker of all things seen and unseen. He is the one who has vanquished the evil one. He is the one of whom the angels never cease to sing, holy, holy, holy. And I pray that this study on angels, demons, spiritual warfare has led us to rejoice in God's greatness. I'm going to leave you with Romans 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for coming and being a part of Against the Darkness. Um, we will end here. So if you have any questions, I'll stick around up here. If not, enjoy the donut. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. 
Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone dash U.